Hello, this is the Away Leg, and this week I'm joined by a very happy Arsenal fan in Dan Turner-Hughes, Michael Hanlon, a man with his boots on the ground in Newcastle, sort of, and direct from doing his dishes, David Hanlon. We take a look at Saturday's FA Cup final, give our thoughts on the Saudis saying so long Newcastle United, and introduce the inaugural Away Leg transfer time attack. Good evening, boys. How are we? Daniel? Yeah, great, mate. <laughs> it's been a good weekend for you, has it? Oh, yes. Are you, so are you, fi- are you finally sober? Uh, just about. Just about. <laughs> good to hear. David, you've uh, you've joined us this week. Glad to be back, guys, after my hiatus. Uh, and Michael? Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, we're uh, yeah, normal, as ever. Good. Good, good to hear. Uh, so it's the FA Cup final on, on Saturday night. Dan, you're pleased with the result, I'm guessing? Uh, just a little bit, you know, could have been better. No, of course I am. It was a brilliant result for Arsenal. Uh, to be honest with you, a result that none of us expected as Arsenal fans at all, considering how poorly our season started. Um, Emery left us seemingly in tatters, and then Arteta came in and did what I really believed he would do and completely turn the ship around, got all the players back in the dressing room as one unit and to win the FA Cup in probably our worst season in 20 years or something like that, 25 years against a very strong Chelsea side who I will admit were unlucky as well with the, not only their decisions that went didn't go their way but also the injuries as well. But we still won convincingly and we... After the first 30 minutes, we played them off the park all the way to the end of the game. We'll get on to the injuries and the decisions against Chelsea as we go through the rundown of the match. So we'll get started from kick-off. Chelsea started well, pressed high, used their possession well. They scored within the first six minutes, I think it was, with uh, with a nice little movement. Mason Mount breaking forward, passing it across to Giroud. Giroud doing really well to keep hold of it. Slipping it through with a really cheeky little back heel to Pulisic, who manages to just sneak his way past Kieran Tierney, I believe it was, uh, yeah. and slot it, slot it home past A. Martinez. It was a good move. It was a good goal. It really does show what Chelsea tackle line are capable of. The thing that I did notice throughout the first 30 minutes, as you said, Dan, when Chelsea really did have a lot of the ball, was that there was a lot of occasions, and the commentators and BBC kept making reference to it, of that Giroud tended to be almost unhappy with where the balls were going and not quite getting the service. And times where he probably should have had the ball, he wasn't getting it. I think that kind of falls down to maybe the, maybe Pulisic and Mason Mount not really being used to playing with Giroud because he obviously plays quite differently to the way Tammy Abraham would play because he's a big lad. Yeah. yeah. thing is, though, for that Chelsea team, like now they've got, um, does it benefit them? Does it benefit Pulisic and Mount having a striker like Werner? Well, one of the questions I've got for you later on is how that Chelsea team really is going to fit together next season, which we can only find out as time goes on. But at the minute, I don't quite know how they're going to get all of those attacking players in because they're so heavily weighted forward. The point about it, um, I think it was a few days back, about how they're going to have to ship someone out to make room because Tammy Abraham isn't going to go anywhere. If Tammy Abraham had started the game would have been entirely different. I thoroughly, thoroughly believe that. We wouldn't have been able to deal with his pace and his strength. I mean, you could also sort of say the same for Giroud, obviously slightly slower. And again, part of that attacking move, Giroud was part of that. Would Tammy Abraham have been a part of that move? More than likely. And yeah, 
I still oh. believe that he would have changed the game. But in regards to Timo Werner coming in, yeah, I think Lampard's going to have a real headache. Well, my issue with what you've just said, Dan, is I don't think it would have been different if Tammy Abraham had played because Giroud's a completely different player. He is more of the hold-up striker, even though he doesn't like to admit it, whereas Tammy is a bit direct. So I don't think Pulisic scores that goal if Tammy Abraham's on the pitch. I think I think one of the things about Giroud's game that can't be understated that really showed up in the World Cup where there was that famous stat that went around of Giroud managed to win a World Cup without ever really having a proper shot on target. But his his technical play of being able to hold the ball and move it on and progress that possession, hold it and recycle it and actually keep an attacking move going by using his body and using his strength and using the fact of he's got a good touch for a big man sort of thing. He, yeah, that's one of his real skills. Uh, we'll we'll move on. So Pulisic scores, lovely goal, one 0 Chelsea. Chelsea then carry on the pressure, carry on, and it does look a bit worrying for Arsenal at times. They do get forward a few times. Uh, Ainsley Bit Niles gets a good couple of breaks forward. Manages to kind of get the ball into the box, but nothing really comes of it. Arsenal get a corner or two, and they try the same corner routine over and over again, which doesn't really work well for them. Kovacic gets a gets his gets a yellow card which turns out to have been a very important moment in the game, where at first it looked like fairly nothing. Uh, to be quite honest with you, he got that book in within the first 20 minutes. I looked at it and thought, he's in trouble now. Cause you I, get won't, a book. I, won't, uh, I, I won't lie that Anthony Taylor's decision-making was definitely questionable. <sighs> yeah, a lot of the decisions did go our way, and Chelsea had a lot of arguments. You can't deny that at all. If it had been on the shoe on the other foot we'd have been having the same complaints, and rightfully so. In my opinion, Kovacic's second yellow was harsh. However, the tackle he made on Xhaka, yeah, he did clip his toe on Xhaka, yeah, he overreacted. We'll get around to the second tackle, but for the first tackle, it was a foul on Danny Ceballos, who had a great game. I think it really probably was a yellow for a slightly early challenge that was a little bit risky. Warning. He could have got, could have given me a caution and got on with it. It's a cup final, but also I can understand giving a booking early and kind of be like, right, I don't want any of this nonsense early. I can understand why that booking got given. Well, my issue was it was a scrappy game. Them tackles were going in, some were given somewhere, like foul wise. And putting a booking on that one, you could have easily put a booking on the one before or so on and so forth. It just seemed like a point of game to put the first major, like, booking in the book really like for Kovacic like obviously he loves a tackle as well say it was the other way around and it was Jacka getting that you'd probably put money on Jacka getting sent off could have fallen either way that one yeah but yeah so he gets his yellow card for trying to dance by us uh, and then very sure afterwards you get the first drinks break 21 minutes in and I don't know I don't know what Mikel Arteta said to them during that drinks break but clearly he had an effect on it because they came out the gate really hot from that and within Minutes, minutes of us getting back on the pitch. Abamyang's through on goal. Aspliqueta is chasing him down, gets a hold of him, starts dragging him down. The foul starts outside the box. Abamyang carries on his feet, gets into the box, and then gets brought down for a penalty. Now, it went to VAR review, and VAR confirmed it yet yeah, was in the box. I can't argue with that. Yes, the foul started outside the box. Ashley Cole said it was one of the pundits on. He said, if it was me, I'd have brought him down outside the box. He said, yeah, it might have been a red card if it was outside the box, but I'd have brought him down sooner because then you know you've got, you're not having that opportunity. I think it should have been a send off, send it off anyway because the foul started outside of the box. And he was the like, last if man. He fouled him, 
if he no, well, the last man rules changed now. There is that sort of double jeopardy they kept referencing on the BBC coverage, mm-hmm. where it's, yeah, it would have been a sending off in the in the box if he'd have tried to get a shot off or something along those lines. But for me, because the foul started outside of the box. Yes, it continued into the box, but the intent was there from outside the box. Yeah. So I think that it should have been a sending off regardless. I mean, okay, you could kind of say that Asper Lequeta ended up going off later on in the game because of the injury anyway. But I just think that the entire complexion of the game changed like so many different times. Obviously, Joe, you just referenced to the drinks break and whatever Arteta said to him work. Because obviously they had the goal disallowed for offside. Just before the penalty decision. Oh, Pepe's strike was oh, fantastic. Yeah. Pepe's goal. Oh my god! I it was a fantastic finish. Oh yeah, well. Like- me and Dave just just said to it just said there. I completely forgot about that one. It was a quality finish. It all, it all, did always kind of feel like it was almost accidental. Like he felt surprised at everyone else, but yeah, it was a quality finish. When it comes to look, did you see Pepe's body shape when he actually struck the ball first time? He's like he's not leaned back. He's leaned sideways and wrapped his foot around it first time. And the velocity the ball hit the back of the net, the sound it made was awesome. I just wish that goal had stood. If if only Maitland Niles wasn't offside, but yeah, it was, it was a cracking goal. But yeah, it was offside, and it was a fair offside. Looking at the replays of it, he, he was off. Oh yeah, not really speak on that one. It is a shame, but hey ho, we move on. So the question that the question that I've put in the notes for you is, as Mike more or less got to there, is should Asbukwet's foul on Aubameyang have been a red card anyway? Now for me. I don't think it is. Obviously, hindsight being twenty twenty, it's not like it really matters because Asbiquetta's game was over within five minutes of that challenge. Of that. Anyway, well, no, the, he, did, he got taken off after half time, didn't he? It was no, like, no, was he was off early. He was off really early. Was yeah. he? Because I'm sure was he off before Pulisic? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so it's about oh. take Abamian takes the penalty. The next attack in Asbiquetta goes down and is off. So it's within five minutes of that spot kick. But then you're saying then if, if Chelsea were down to 10 men before that, then it's sort of like they didn't it's have a, the chance. It's a very different it. game. Yeah. For yeah. us to be quite it makes very little difference for his actual no. game. Yeah, I, I think it's a harsh to give that as a red anyway. Like, as a defender, your job is to stop that striker scoring. And he did that job. Yeah. He obviously didn't do it well because, like like I said, Ashley Cole, and I think that's exactly what I would have done if I was in his position. I'd have brought him down outside the box. I'd have gone, oh, it's going to be a penalty if he gets any further. I'm going to have to bring him down. Yeah, it might be a red card, but you've got to take that, that risk. On that, on that token, Joe, the only way Aspilicueta is actually going to bring Aubameyang down before he even gets in the box, he has to hack him down. Like He's got to drop on his ass and take him down by his feet. And that would have been a straight red card. Regardless, so it's actually, when you think about it, Aspilicueta has done himself a favour by just dragging him down by his shoulder. I mean, it's... It, Abamian he's going to get through either way, and I think he, he would have scored either way. You were saying about the professional foul there, Mike. Yeah, I think that it's a sending off regardless because it's a professional foul. Mm-hmm. He knows what he's doing. He brings yeah. him down. Like he starts it outside the box. Obviously, the pressure that he was putting on him outside the box didn't do enough. So then, as he's got into the box, he's just had a little bit more of a tug and. Abamian's taking his opportunity. And if you're an attacker and you, you, the defender's got arms all over you, why would you not yeah. go down? Yeah, like, absolutely. He's, I he's, just think that it's a professional regardless, foul. Regardless, of who you, regardless of what type of team you side with, you can't really debate Aubameyang going down there. He had, oh, he, no. Yeah, he has a right to go down there. You can't really debate it. So, yeah, spot kick, which is a lovely, lovely penalty. Just straight yeah. over. Gave Caballero the eyes. No chance. 
Did anyone notice that when Caballero took like went to dive, he still had his arm out. <laughs> like he was like, oh, I've, gone, I've gone the wrong way. I'm just gonna drop my arm. He was still like, <laughs> he committed. He committed to that, but he didn't have any chance. Um, <laughs> Complete wrong way. I'll still stick my arm out. Well, dedication. At least he's committed to it. Um, <laughs> at least he looked like he was trying. If Asplay Quetta gets sent off, he doesn't get injured, and yeah. then still have a man. So, yeah, but he ended up with 10 men, definitely 10 men a lot earlier in the game, I suppose. Anyway, so as we kind of mentioned there, Asli Quetta then, within minutes, goes off injured with a hamstring injury, pulls up, he's replaced by Andreas Christensen, who I'd forgotten was a Chelsea player. There's a, there's a few names in this game that I was like, oh, yeah, you exist. Yeah. Uh, Rob Holding being one of them, because as they walked on the pitch, I went, who the hell is that? Rob Holding? <laughs> God, is that what he looks like? He's lost half his airline. <laughs> he is aged, man. He has got old quick. I, like, oh. It's Rob Holden, isn't he like 23? What's going on? Yeah. 23, 24. He's younger than yeah. we are. What's this about? Still, though, he's got two uh, fake cups to his name now. So. <laughs> Madness. <laughs> Anyhow, so he has me quite a then goes off injured. Does that make a big difference in this game? I don't think it does. Disagreement there from the Hanlon boys. So, the thing is with Asplay Quetta, he was the level head of that defensive line. He was the leader of that back line and he didn't get replaced. So you could argue Zuma maybe stood in for him, but I feel like Chelsea's back line was a lot more fragile as soon as Asplay quite went off. And your retort, Michael? Oh, I just think that it doesn't make much of a difference, really, because I Christiansen hasn't had much first-team football this year, but there wasn't that much to kind of, like, many issues to deal with like obviously Arsenal keep pressing and keep going on but I, I still I think from the drinks break on it was just like that was the order of business now arguably Aspilicueta could have probably changed that around and kind of rallied the troops but he wasn't doing much while he was on the pitch but he's always he's a threat as well he is How a many, threat probably stored loads for Chelsea yeah. And I, I agree with you on that point, but I'd, I'd arguably say that given the given those same opportunities, Christiansen would probably do about so the who, same. Who was captain after Asbury Quetta? Jorginho. And is he on his way out with Chelsea? It looks likely. So that's my point. Like You've lost your senior leader figure and you've replaced it with someone who eh, might be off. I feel like it was just the rain was on the wall right there as soon as Asbury Quetta went off. Well... As it turns out, as we know, in the future of this game, wasn't even the most important injury for Chelsea of this game, which we'll get to as we as we go on a little bit further. So Arsenal stay on top throughout the rest of the first half uh, and they do really well. They have a good few attacks. Mason Mount gets a book in just before the half for yet another challenge on Dice Bios. And then we get the half time. I think it's fair. You can see it was a fairly even half because about 21, 22 minutes in, Arsenal were on top of them. After that, before that, Chelsea looked like they were going to win the game. And I think the scoreline of 1 1 was a pretty fair scoreline for that half. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Dan? Yeah. I'd say so. Good. We'll move on. So, second half comes along, and within minutes, as we mentioned, it gets worse for Chelsea. Christian Pulisic makes a break, goes forward, passes Rob Holden, takes a shot. It's a fairly poor shot and then drops to the ground. Uh, and as replays show us, he's clearly done something in the build-up and has done well to even get 
as close shot. to the box he did and get that shot off. He drops the ground, yet another hamstring injury, and he's helped off the pitch. That's his game done. So that's two injuries for Chelsea in the first 50 minutes of this game. And to two arguably fairly key players, being one being the captain and two being one of their best goal scorers this season. So that's a, a big, big, big blow for them. Do you know one of the things that I find quite remarkable about Pulisic, but just before he goes down, literally I'd say about 10 strides before he drops, screaming his nuts off while he's still running with the ball. And he still tries to get the shot off while he's screaming going down. That man's got to do that because he must have been in some serious pain. I feel like it was. It's he's their best player by a long way since the restart. Losing him at the time is that aren't they still in the Champions League? Yeah, they're against Bayern Munich next week. Three 0 deficit there. I believe they're away at Bayern Munich, so they they'll be in Munich uh, without Azpilicueta or Pulisic. Next question I've got for you is how how bright is Pulisic's future as a player? Maybe not at Chelsea the entire time, but. He's fantastic, isn't he? He's clearly he's going to be. How he's not? How he's not USA's team captain yet? I don't know. It's because he's so young. He's only like early twenties. Twenty-two, I believe. To be fair, I've got yeah. no idea who else even plays for the US team apart from Pulisic, because their their national team has been fairly poor for the last few years, apart from him. London Donovan probably. Clint Dempsey, Tim Howard, yeah. Brad Friedel, jo- Josie Altador. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bradley, he's American. Uh, who else have we got? <laughs> who was who was the one who played? Wasn't he a centre back for Stoke? Tim Ream. No, no. Jeff Cameron. Jeff oh, Cameron. Yeah. Jeff Cameron. Yeah. Jeff Cameron. Land, what was his name? You. Landon Donovan. I've already said that. Oh, Lyndon Gooch. Lyndon Gooch. Sunderland. Up the Gooch. <laughs> Sunderland, <laughs> Sunderland midfielder. Oh God. Right. Well. Oh, God, I love Landon Gooch. So. So back to the original question of how how good could Pulisic be? Oh, top class. Future Ballon d'Or winner. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's a bold statement, that one. I think it's fair, though. Look, when, you, when you look at how much of an impact he's had at Chelsea since he, since he came in, never mind since the restart, Pulisic has been absolutely on fire and it has been scoring not just vital goals, but he's been scoring some really nice goals as well. And yeah, he has been Chelsea's key player, definitely since the restart. And for me, since he came in, he's been brilliant. I think he's hazard very well. So so back to the actual FA Cup game. It's pretty end-to-end for a good few minutes after Pulisic goes off. Pedro comes on in his place, has an attack almost immediately, does fairly well. After a few minutes, Bellerin brings the ball forward. Christensen puts in a loose challenge. The ball slips through to Pepe. He finds a Bamiang across the box. A Bamiang turns Zuma really well and chips it over Caballero. Quality finish. Absolutely beautiful goal. The first thing I thought was he's not going to shoot this on his right because you can see Zuma's looking, he's waiting for that. He's going to try and stick his foot out. Turns him on his left. Bamian dinks, he just not just shoots the ball, he dinks Caballero. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) he's just. Right. Troy Deeney, Cojones, okay. For me, the whole kind of thing was how Aubameyang kind of spoke in his post-match interview, where he was like, well, Kurt Zuma knows me well, so he what he, he showed me onto my left foot, yeah. and I just I, I proved to him that it doesn't matter which way you send me, I'm going to find the back of the net pretty much. And it's like, 
that is that is a Bamiang down to a T. Like it doesn't matter how the ball comes to him, doesn't matter which part of, of his body it hits, there's a the very good chance that it could just bounce off his left kneecap and go in like from thirty yards out. That that's how good that guy is at scoring goals. And I think yeah. without him, Arsenal would struggle. Really Even Lacazette looks better with Aubameyang by his side. Yes. Like, yes, absolutely. Got them two firing on all cylinders. And at the end of the game, you could see how much it meant to both of them. I think the problem that Arsenal had with Unai Emery was he was playing them against each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's yeah, like it was. it was either Lacazette or Aubameyang, not both. Yeah. And it's like they feed off each other so well because they're both world-class players. Like, yeah. I kind of forgot how good Lacazette was. Mm. And then I've, I've watched the last couple of Arsenal games. I've been like, his movement is spectacular. Like, you just yeah. have to watch. Like, it's one thing that I miss about watching football on Sky Sports back in the day where you could watch player cam because, like, you could see the way that players play without the ball. And I think one of Arsenal's big problems this season before Arteta is they weren't playing good football away from the ball. For a there long is. time, even when they were under Emery, Amber, we've watched Arsenal games where I've where we've all been sat there and I've been shouting at the telly going, why is no one moving? Why is we yeah. stood there doing nothing? You could see it happening. There was yeah, there were times when under Emery, even the Vengar, like I said, would have the ball, we try to make something with it, and everyone else would just be stood there looking at him like, Oh yeah, mate, yeah. you were uh, you're on the attack there. Oh, cool, yeah. crack on. Lacazette is he's the smaller version and faster version of Giroud. Them, them two together. I'm not going to make this comparison. I'm just going to say they remind me of Bergkamp and Henri. The way Bergkamp would hold the ball up, would feed Henri and go through. Bang, there you go. There's a goal. I don't know. I feel like Bentner and Schumacher. <laughs> Bentner and Schumacher were like God tier. Like, that was like a. <laughs> So we talked about Lacazette a little bit there. The question I've got for you now is, is Aubameyang one of the world's best forwards at the minute? Yes. No doubt. Okay, he, so... He, he, Aguero... Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rephrase this. When I say one of the world's best forwards, I mean in maybe the top five. Yes. And, and for me, that's a very strong... That's, yeah, Dave's face tells me everything there. That's a very complicated argument because, of course, you've got the likes of Ronaldo and Messi who are obviously top of the game. They're Ronaldo's not a striker. I didn't say striker, I said forwards. Okay, and at this point, neither is a Bamiang. He's playing on the left wing, so don't be giving me that. I know. <laughs> so, Ronaldo plays. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. So you've got Ronaldo and Messi are obviously going to be the top two in more or less every question there. doesn't matter which way around you put them, they're going to be the top two of when it comes to your best forwards. Lewandowski. Lewandowski's got to be in there because he's phenomenal. Chiro Immobile, for me, he's got to be in there because he's just won the European Golden Shoe for being the best European goal scorer. Yeah. And the question of now. who fills that fifth role is a bit of a questionable one because you've got you've still got Neymar and Bappe, you've got Aubameyang, you've got Harry Kane, you've got Vardy, you've got Salah, Firmino, Mane. There's a lot of people who could fill that fifth spot. Don't get me wrong, Bamiyang definitely, I think, is in the top 10. He's certainly one of the Premier League's best forwards. But is he one of the best in the world? Do you know what, right? I think the only argument I could put forward in regards to that is in the last, was it two or three seasons, he's either won the golden boot or he's been right behind the winner. Uh, he was the he was joint joint winner uh, between himself, Salah and Mane last season and was, I think, third for it this season behind... Mm-hmm. 
And Danny he, Ings. And he won it in 2018. With yes. Tied it with yeah, he won it in I 2018. Since the restart, he's been unbelievable. I think before that, for a while, he was a little bit hit and miss, especially under Emery. Like, yeah. yeah, he was still popping up with vital oh. goals. However, if Arteta had been in from the beginning of the season, I honestly think Arsenal would have been title contenders. Mm. Well, no. Maybe. No. I think we'd have definitely got top four, I would yeah. say that. I, I, I think you might go top six. You finished 10th. Eighth. Still I'll always finish in 25 years. We can't get away from that. We we have been poor, horrendously poor, for a multitude of factors. I don't want to lay all of the blame on Emery, because he did try. But it, there was just even too many games he got his tactics wrong. Too many. My issue with Arsenal... Emery and everyone is Emery's a great manager for certain teams same as I'd say Pochettino great manager for certain teams he does well at building his own team and then getting them somewhere about when he's gone into jobs where the team's already there PSG Arsenal he hasn't performed I think I think one of the biggest problems for Unai Emery and I, I don't want to hear any jokes with this one I think there is a lot of big problem with the language barrier. Like he, as we yeah. know, he he was not fluent with English and he could not speak English well. At, for a manager, that's one of those big problems. Like some of the world's best managers, one of their one of their defining factors is they can speak like four, six languages. Isn't it? Yeah. Pep Guardiola can speak something like five or six, can't he? Yeah, he is. He's multilingual, absolutely. Well, it was like in the BBC kind of commentary they were saying how Arteta was shouting in English, Spanish and French. Yeah, I heard that. I thought and it was real like, And I was like, that is unreal. You He's always shouting Ale, Ale, Ale to Lacazette and I just I love hearing that. It's just so f***ing cool. What I could really hear from the commentary was him shouting at uh, Ainsley. Yeah, just, I heard that one. Ainsley! Another thing that I really enjoyed about that was Rob Holden's post-match interview where they were talking about Ian Wright shouting from the uh, press box. <laughs> And he was like, could you actually hear Wrighty going man on? And he was like, I was like, what was yeah. going on? And I turned around and it was Wrighty. And like, <laughs> I was like, I'd be getting yeah. Arsenal done for like match fixing. Like, you can't just have like one man stood there. 12, man. <laughs> I think you should have got a medal. Should have been part of the coaching yeah. staff. <laughs> say what, fellas, I've got a question for you, for all three of you now, in regards to the whole manager thing. Now we've got our opinions about Emery out the way in regards to this like this season which I'm a massive fan of Arteta and have been for a long time after what he's just done in the last six seasons honestly where would you guys put Arteta right now what as in what team or what position what's the question here as in like rankings with managers in the world let's say oh that's a big question under, I'd say he's probably on par with Eddie Howe. Mm. Oh, that's, that's bold, considering he can't relegate. Yeah, no, because he's not proven. I get where Dave's going with this. Yeah, I kind of understand what you mean. I, I, I think this is a question that we shouldn't be answering today. I think this is a question for certainly the day. You know, We probably will revisit this during the next season, so, you know, in like 12 weeks. My oh, issue with what Dave just said there is, though, that he's unproven. I think after winning the FA Cup in six months with the team that he had, 
that's proving something, Dave. But it's not. It's how is it? Okay, what so oh, hang on, hang on. So before we before we get into uh, unnecessary arguments about topics that aren't on the list, Mick Arteta clearly has proven a talent at setting my, a team. No, setting a team up for certain big games, as evidenced by the fact of Manchester, his game against City, game against Liverpool, game against Chelsea. For certain big games, he can, and I think this does prove a lot to his training under Pep, he can look at the team he's against and plan against that. He's very good at counter-tactics and counter-management. But yeah. so far, as we've seen, the day-to-day, week-to-week stuff, maybe hasn't shown exactly what he can do yet. I think once he has a transfer window under his belt, really gets things sorted out and they go into the next season, there's a lot There's a lot of questions going to be raised about everything from this season because no one really knows, no one really knows what to come out of it because we've never had this. So I think it's hard to, I think it's hard to really put a, put a stamp on it of how good is he right now. But clearly he has shown potential to be excellent. He clearly can perform. He clearly can perform and manage for the big games, but it's it's the likes it's the likes of the Aston Villas and the Norwiches and the Southamptons, yeah. and the West Ham's and Burnleys that you need to beat in every week to be at that top four. That's the thing. I, I think the thing that Arteta has got going for him is the group of players that he has there now want to play for him. Yeah, like you yeah. could see how much it meant to them after the whistle had gone. You could see how much it meant to like players like Emmy Martinez and stuff like that, but. One of the things that you hear throughout transfer windows and anything that with players that come into clubs or leave clubs is their reaction. Without going on too much of a tangent, like one a team that we hold dear to our heart signed a player, and he signed for the manager. So was it's that like, player by some chance Grant Hall? Yes, it was. But is that manager by like, some chance the oldest man in football that's not named Roy Hodgson? Yeah, but mm. it's it's that sort of mm. that's the sort of manager that Arteta is. The players want to play for him. If someone like let's say who's got like Gertz is leaving Borussia Dortmund this year on a free transfer. Well, I mean, but... No, no, he's not. He's leaving Borussia Dortmund. Who are you on about, Mike? Goethe. Oh, Goethe. I think it's Goretzka. No, Goethe, and he's only young. He's still only young. Like. The fact that he's leaping on a free transfer is ridiculous. But he gets on the phone to Aubameyang. What's it like at Arsenal? Aubameyang might go, well, it's much better now we've got Arteta in charge. And he's like, all right, OK. And that that gives him a little bit more stock in the transfer market. Yeah, we, we spoke a lot We spoke a lot last week about about this factor with Jurgen Klopp of how he's got a group of players who want to play for, for him sure. and want to play for the club. I think Arteta does have that going for him. Back to the FA Cup, it's 2-1 to Arsenal. We're going to the second half, drinks break. And then shortly after the restart, it, the drama kicks up all over again as Kovacic gets a second yellow card for attack on Xhaka. Now, VAR does not review yellow cards. It reviews red cards, penalties, goals, but it does not review yellow cards because they're classed as minor incidents. Here's the thing. If it's a second yellow card, then results for a player set being sent off. Is that a minor incident? Because I'd for say me, definitely not. The whole kind of thing about that second yellow card, I would say, is had he fouled before that, after the yellow card, between the two yellow cards, was there a foul where Kovacic was involved? Because if it was and he'd been warned, and then that that's a foul, and it was a foul, like it was a soft foul, but there was contact made. Yes, Jack had made the most of it, but there was contact made. Yeah, I think I think it, I think it's not unfair. It feel it feels unfair when you look back at the two incidents. But yeah, for sure. As you mentioned there, there was 
was definitely a few occasions where Kovacic had been a little bit heavy and a little bit frivolous with his tackles, let's say. The ref had had a word with him, had cautioned him at least once. And I think I think once you've once you've been given, as we said earlier on, the first booking was questionable. But if you've already if you've already got in the book and you've been given a couple of chances and you've been told, look, you need to calm it down, you will get a second yellow. You need to sort also his reaction his reaction to the challenge. All these all these aspects kind of go against him. For me, it kind of looked like he was making some sort of protest to the referee like I didn't touch him or anything like that and there's like as soon as you open your mouth you're kind of there's that dissent factor as well like you shouldn't be you shouldn't be encouraging a referee to send you off no I, I think I think he didn't help himself I think no. in the grand scheme of things as I said earlier as soon as you got the first book and I thought you're going off in this game yeah exactly if it didn't happen then it would have happened five again. minutes down the line oh uh, yeah I think he would have ended up getting a red card but I think it looks Worse in hindsight because of the challenge that was put in. Here's the thing. There were a dozen, as Dave mentioned earlier, there were a dozen challenges in this game that were significantly worse than that. They didn't get a book in. Yeah. So why this one got a book in is questionable. If, like, yes, there was there was some contact there, but if he kind of just holds his hands up and goes to the ref, I did touch him, but it wasn't as bad as he's making it out to be. I think that's kind of like, uh, all right, one more and you're off. But it's the fact that he kind of loses his temper a bit, and I think that kind of forces the referees out to kind of Enough, enough. Early back for you, Tom. Yeah, Dave, your opinion on the yellow card? <laughs> well, my issue with it is I thought it was needless, a needless yellow card. Thing is, I, I agree. It's probably because he lost his temper, mainly why he's got booked. Whereas if he goes, I've touched him. I'm sorry, it wasn't that bad. He probably gets off with it. But in the heat of the moment. Oh, yeah, as you say, Ironside's a wonderful thing. He probably regretted it, but I'd say it was a booking. So. And, and the wrestling Arsenal fan, Daniel, uh, do you think it was the correct decision? It, it, it's tough because, for me personally, his first challenge was worse. So that was a rightful yellow card. The second one, I think I wouldn't have given him a, a yellow card. I'd have given him one last warning. I'd have been like, right, you've gone in recklessly there. You've took his toe and he's making a bit, of, a bit of a meal of it. This is your last warning now. You do it again, you are going off and it'll be a straight red. Me personally, I wouldn't have given him a yellow card, but obviously Anthony Taylor thought otherwise. So for me, it was a little unfair. That's my personal opinion on it, even as an Arsenal fan. like I don't like seeing players needlessly have to be sent off, no matter what team they play on. I, I just don't like it. It's, it's not football for me. I think our unanimous decision there really is maybe that wasn't a sending off but the way things were going he wasn't going to finish that game was he? If the second challenge comes in first I think he books him that's my personal toughness on it I think if he does that for that second challenge first that's a booking and then the second challenge like the first challenge if, if the it's challenges were reversed I think that it's yeah, a red card yeah, they were the same outcome I think that's the point it's like it was a reckless challenge it didn't need to be made and yeah, yeah, okay, he didn't really get him, but it's the intent. So I think we've talked about this one enough. We'll move on. Yeah. It all kicks off a little bit. People aren't happy with the decision, or as you can imagine why, because as we said, it looks worse in isolation. Mikel Arteta becomes the first manager in FA Cup final to get a yellow card himself uh, for a dispute with Antonio Rudiger on the touchline. So that was yet, hilarious. So there's the yet another record for Arsenal in the FA Cup. But it all calms down and we get back to the game. And Chelsea make their last set of substitutions. And this will be a slightly odd topic, and I'll get onto this. Chelsea make their last set of substitutions. 
subbing off three players, being Mason Mount, Olivier Giroud and Antonio Rudiger, for Ross Barkley, Tammy Abraham and Callum Hudson-Odoi. Now, we will get back to this. We will come back to this a little bit. But I didn't realise this was a rule until it was said during this match of you're allowed five substitutes, but you're only allowed to make them in three separate points, which feels... I can understand why, because obviously it's to stop managers from trying to break the game up and slow down play towards the end of the match but also that feels really silly and this game then proves why that's silly later on I think it's one of those things if it's uh, I think it's only a temporary rule whilst Covid's going on well Um, I think that rule will stand however in next season if we do end up with five substitutes next season which is still being debated because obviously some of the smaller clubs think it's unfair and some big clubs are going I don't see a problem with it so they make the last set of subs there's then a, a bit of an incident which doesn't really get talked about much. There is a replay later on but it, which fixes it, but it still it was not one. I wasn't sure what was going on when watching the game. Of uh, A ball comes over the top, Emi Martinez comes out to get it and appears to be outside of his box when he catches it. The replay says that he wasn't and it goes to VAR review, but it was very much brushed to the side a bit. And I looked at that and went, he's surely out of his box. He's got to be. He was, but the ball wasn't like his body was out of the box, but the ball was on the line. So he was in the box technically. So hang on. So, so this is the thing I don't get. So if it's a penalty, the man's got to be in the box regardless of where the ball is. Yeah. But if, but a goalkeeper can come out of his box, turn round, be stood outside his box, jump up and catch the ball inside his box, and that's fine. Yeah. Despite the fact that he's then putting himself in between the player and the man, therefore putting himself in a position where he cannot be to actually interact with that ball. Yeah. Is that not a bit weird? It's this weird. This is one of the things the that is like, as a goalkeeper, like years ago, if you did that, you've, you've given away a free kick. Yeah, even if... Disagree. If you so, handballed it because your feet are on the outside of the penalty area... That's what I was taught. That's what I was led to believe. I gotta say, so when Dan, I saw that, I was like, oh, no, what's he doing? Hold on, Dad. I'm, I'm going to go to the resident goalkeeper. Michael, you're very excited about this. Right, okay. So, ah, I know when this rule was changed, and I know why it was changed, and I believe it was Michael Oakes, who was in goal for, I believe, Aston Villa or Leicester, one of the two. But he made a save, which was on the line, of the of the penalty area or he handled the ball just it was he was in the d but his hands were in the box and he got sent off and it got it got changed so i think whoever the team was that he was playing for they appealed the decision and it got overturned like the the red card got overturned because technically his hands made contact with that ball inside the box so yeah i get what you're saying like it does feel a little bit weird but as long as his hands and that ball were on the line it isn't a handball yeah okay so so let me slightly rephrase the scenario i put forward there so if this is the bit that I'd make question with, and it's the same idea of if someone's offside without making kind of the ball, but they're impeding the keeper, which we have seen. So imagine a situation where a ball comes over the top and a quick player, Bamiyang, Jimmy Vardy, Marcus Rashford, whoever, is running onto it. The keeper runs out, gets ahead of the ball, gets outside their own box, turns their back to the player, facing their own goal, jumps and catches it. Now, their feet are outside the box with an oncoming attacking player behind them. So what they're doing yeah. is putting themselves in between the player and the ball. But time with with defenders they get themselves in front of the ball and shield the ball from them yeah but they're not allowed but they're not in the position where they're allowed to use their hands what i'm questioning here is they then jump and catch that ball yes the ball and their hands are inside the box but if they're on the other side of that do they make contact with that ball first or does the attacker get there because the reason that attacker might not get to that ball first is because that keeper's now in their way so instead of 
they've either got the question of clatter a goalkeeper and concede a foul or still slow down. So they're not getting that ball either way because the goalkeeper's made that decision by putting himself outside of a box in a technically illegal position, but also it isn't illegal. Yeah, I see what you mean. So you're on about like obstruction. Yeah, it's it's a very confusing rule, that one for me. And I think it, it needs it needs ironing out that one. Yeah. I, I see what you mean about like the obstruction of it. Well, like, I think it's I think it's the kind of sorry they've gone. No, so I feel like it's obstruction. because like, he's got no intent to play the ball. He's just blocking the defender off. Like, I, th- I just not... think it's a fifty fifty. Well Emmy Martinez a, Emmy Emmy Martinez has every right to go for that ball. Yeah. Oh yeah, in this situation. Regardless yeah, but... of his position. No, no, in this situation, no. yeah, Emmy Martinez is in the right. But in this theoretical situation where someone has come out, turned their back to an attacker to intentionally block them, and then the call there? Well, yeah, I think in that case, if there's like a clear obstruction, I think that's the sort of thing that would go to VAR, they'd spend 20 minutes looking at it, and then they'll make some sort of decision. But, yeah, but it would never be the right decision, because which way would you rule? Because neither person has made a foul. Because they could, Well, either neither person has made a foul, or there are two, two rules oh. which contradict each other. So after the odd incident... With Amy Martinez and goalkeeping, Arsenal finally makes substitution. Lacazette comes off, uh, Eddie and Ketty comes on to replace him. David Luiz, shortly afterwards, or at the same time, I'm not sure, it, the next transfer, the uh, next uh, substitution is made. So David Luiz is replaced by uh, Socrates. Ross Bartley gets a yellow card for challenge on Ketia. Uh, we hit night. We hit get towards the end of the game. Seven minutes at a time. Chelsea gets a couple of promising attacks, and it does look a little bit shaky for a couple of minutes. However, in the last couple of minutes, and I mean within literally within the last two minutes, Pedro goes down with an injury. Turns and as we currently know, it seems to be a fairly serious injury. It's suspected a dislocated shoulder. Was stretched off the pitch. Got given some oxygen. The whole lot was was clearly a fairly serious injury. Which then meant because Chelsea had already used their three substitution breaks and their five substitutions, they were finishing those last two minutes with nine men. Not that it, not that it theoretically would have made much of a difference if they had had ten men, but we are now in a position where there are rules in place that mean teams can be left in the lurch a little bit, which. As I said earlier on, we'll get to actually, as it turns out, this five substitutions in three sets rule being a little bit odd because games like this do happen where there is an injury. Because if if Chelsea had been allowed to make more than three substitution breaks, would they have made all their three subs, the last three subs at once? I don't think they would. So no, I don't either. To be fair. So they, they could have, again, it was only two minutes, but they, they could have finished that game with 10 men, arguably. Yeah. Either way, so he goes off injured, which is a shame. Arsenal make a couple of substitutions for the last oh, maybe 30 seconds. Senna Kalasinac comes on for Kieran Tierney, and we get the final whistle. Arsenal win 2-1 for their 14th FA Cup. Yep. 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 Yep's all round. I'll take that as a move on. Aubameyang got the man of the match for the game, which you can understand why he scored two goals, was clearly one of the better players in the pitch. But personally for me, and I've spoken to you about this off-air, Dave, we would have given it to Nancy Bios, wouldn't we? Yeah, easily. I think if, if anyone other than Nabamyang takes that penalty, and so therefore he doesn't have two goals and there's one, I think he could easily see someone else getting that man of match award. And I think it would have been Danny Sabayos. He was, yeah. for me, he was the best player on the pitch for Arsenal. He was excellent. He was everywhere. He caused problems. He distributed the ball. Oh, well, he drew fouls. Did everything you want, really. So, so we both go on that day of man of the match being Danny Tobias. Uh, Mike, for you? Uh, for me, it's got to be Emi Martinez. He commanded his box well. He communicated well from the back. And I think he pulled a lot of strings that people didn't see. Who was your man of the match for the game? 
I have to give these two plaudits because of what they did. Kieran Tierney Kieran Tierney and Pepe. Now, those were two players for me that I I don't think are that strong. Pepe had a good game. I'll give him that. He, good, he didn't get anything wrong. For me, and I said this to Dave again, and we had a conversation about this match off air, Kieran Tierney didn't impress me in that game much. And I, he's a great defender, and I think part of the problem was the fact that he's by trade a, a full-back and he was baiting play at centre-back, which I think was a little bit odd for him. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with his history. He might have well played dozens of games at centre-back. I didn't think he had an excellent game. I thought he was... I was awful. watching the little things that Tierney was doing. He was doing... like Same with he and Ceballos. They were doing the little things on the field that won Arsenal the game overall. Uh, but for me, my man of the match, it is a Bamiyan. But I agree with Mike, it could have very well been Martinez, because that's 10 years in the making for that lad. So not Pepe or Tierney? No, Pepe, again, was doing all the little <laughs> things as well. Pepe, on the attack, was making Chelsea hit themselves all game. Yeah, for me, it's um, it, it's Aubameyang, obviously, but I would, I would have given it to Martinez. Fair enough. Right, we'll move on. So, FA Cup, that's in the books. We're done now. Thank God that's over. That is that is almost, that is very nearly almost the 2019-20 season done. Next, talk, next story I want to talk about fairly briefly, and it's, we're not going to be doing a very much, uh, we're not going to be doing a forensic analysis of this. No. It, it is very much a, a quick opinion sort of thing. The Newcastle takeover has in its current form, formed through. So the so Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, uh, also known as PIF, PCP Capital Partners, uh, who the face of which is Amanda Stavely, and the Rubin brothers had been pursuing a, a full buyout takeover purchase of Newcastle United for over 17 weeks from, I think, yesterday. All was... Moving along, let's say, it wasn't exactly moving quickly or swimmingly, but with a, with a takeover of this nature being one from a questionable sovereign nation. It seemed to be moving fast to start with. Yeah, it was going quite well, then kind of went very quiet for a while and then came back on the radar when we hit the Premier League's fit proper persons test for owners and directors, where it kind of just sat for weeks and weeks and weeks and no one really knew what was going on no one's really talking and we got there was a lot of there was a lot of interviews and a lot of talk out of the the camps of the buying parties and saying oh yeah you know it's fine it's fine everything's moving along we're just waiting to hear back just waiting to hear back uh, and as the club Newcastle Mike Ash was saying yeah well you know as far as we're aware it's, everything's going ahead everything's getting sold we're very committed to this sale and whatnot this that the other but there was nothing itself out of the Premier League and in that meantime there were a lot of outside parties putting their opinions in which again people are entitled to as we are now, even there was a lot. Of, there was a, quite a few from humanitarian organisations because obviously there are many questions raised over the situation about human rights in Saudi Arabia, which again isn't why we're here to talk about. One of the biggest issues, weirdly enough, and this isn't obviously the Premier League is not a squeaky clean organisation as any major organisation is because money, 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 money. One of the biggest problems that ended up actually occurring with this deal, which is why it took, which is why one we really had problems with the Premier League passing it through, was the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Now, obviously, there are already in place some fairly good and fairly significant connections between the Premier League and Qatar as they have some of the distribution rights for, I believe, Central Asia, Central and Western Asia. So Qatar actually have a, already have some fairly stable links with the Premier League. And Qatar's, you know, it's maybe not fantastic, but it's not quite as bad as Saudi Arabia, perhaps. So, of course, you then have Saudi Arabia try to buy this. and You'd end up with problems. Maybe Saudi Arabia 
the Saudi Arabian ownership of Newcastle not wanting their games being broadcast on the Qatari network, which then means that the rights to air games and the, the sales to that all become very much complicated. And it's, it becomes a bit of a, a becomes a bit of a faff on, really, in the simplest way of putting it. It becomes a bit of a headache for the Premier League to try and have their games displayed, which they obviously don't want. So my biggest issue with this is that at the minute, as of recording, there has been almost no statement from the Premier League to say whether they would have actually passed them on the fit, fit and proper persons test. This deal has fallen through because PIF, the Saudi Arabian side of the deal, has pulled out. It has not been said that they were not allowed to buy it. It has not been said that was never decided, that was never confirmed, that was never a decision was actually made. They've just gone, this is taking too long, we're off. So they've called it off. We're going to buy Wigan instead. Well, they still do have a lot of interest in buying an English club, which is a question for the day. We'll see how that moves forward. But at the minute, my biggest issue is that the Premier League have not specifically said. And they they need to make a call for me. They need to make a call on that. They They need to set their stance out of either they need to say... Yes, we would have allowed this because obviously there's questions of state ownership. I believe Sheffield United, they have ties with uh, with the national ownership. I'm not entirely sure who, but I know they do have. There's some questions raised about... Basically, so Premier League have put themselves in a position where they can't flat out say, no, we... We would have disallowed this ownership deal for any particular reason, other than we don't feel it's a correct decision given human rights violations, which is what they probably should do, given it's a perfectly reasonable argument. Can I say something controversial quickly? I get with the human rights violations and that Saudis are, are pretty well known for doing some sketchy shit, but uh, on the other hand, so is Mike Ashley. Well... <laughs> One of my questions coming from this is Mike Ashley is a pretty terrible person as the the many various claims, particularly during this pandemic, um, about workers' rights and health and safety and various things in his sports direct stores. Yeah, Mike Ashley has been a fairly terrible owner over the years for Newcastle and they've wanted rid of him for a long time. And so this deal falling through, I do feel sorry for Newcastle fans, particularly given that we are now less than six weeks away from a new season of the Premier League. And I think everyone at Newcastle doesn't really know what the hell's going on because obviously this decision's come fairly out of the blue for them. They were expecting a takeover and now it's not happening. I cannot think of a single owner actually worse than Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley is yeah. a fairly terrible owner, but I think we can all agree that even as terrible as he is, he's, he's arguably a, a, a potentially better owner than... Saudi Arabia because the but, biggest problem with this deal was was the moral side of things where it would be the Premier League were never going to say yes no I I'd like to believe they weren't going to say yes however weirdly Newcastle might actually now be in a much better position this might they might actually come out of this in the nicest way that they possibly could have done because supposedly from rumors currently going around the there may be still a deal in the works involving Amanda Stavely's PCP group and the Rubin brothers and possibly another smaller investor. But you know for a fact that Mike Ashley is still going to ask for a ridiculous sum. Well, regardless of what he asks, but it may be in a case where... I can't stand him. No, well, it it may be in a situation where Newcastle Football Club and the fans come out this a lot better off than they thought they might do. They might be both free of Mike Ashley and his terrible ownership and might not have to be owned by a human rights violating sovereign nation, which really could be beneficial for everyone. Because as far as we're aware, the Ruben brothers and Amanda Stavely, uh, you know, they're, they're maybe not pleasant people, but then they're really not that bad in comparison to everyone else involved in this deal. I think when you look at it from football football terms, Newcastle being back up amongst it in the top six would be good for the Premier League, in my opinion. 
because Newcastle are still a big club. Yes, they're not where they should be right now, but when you think of the Premier League, Newcastle is up there. They are still a historically very big club, and they are still historically the biggest club in the North East. I think the thing that, which is always why I have a little bit of soft, a soft spot for Newcastle, is they have an incredibly dedicated fan base compared to oh, a lot yes. of other a lot of the clubs, their fans, and God bless them, they'll go through hail, rain, snow and sleet for that football club. And they have been treated badly over the years. So for me, they, yeah. they can deserve a bit of a break. And it would be nice if they do get bought out. And it's not too questionable, to be honest, which maybe what we're coming up to, which is quite nice. Any other thoughts on the Saudi Arabian ownership falling through, the lack of it, the general ownership deal takeover of Newcastle, anyone? I think it's the lesser of two evils if they do get taken over. For me, it would be a long time coming. because. Mike Ashley should have been gone years and years and years ago. Well, he's supposedly been looking like sell the club since their first relegation in 2009. So he's been looking to sell the club for 11 years. Yeah. So we'll we'll move on to, the, to, to our next short topic. Eddie Howe has left Bournemouth by mutual consent. I can't say I'm surprised. Yeah, not surprised. No, um, I don't know where he's going to go next, though. That, that's my issue. Like I could see him going to West Ham or somewhere like that. Yeah, I could see. I could see someone like West Ham. I, I think he, I think he maybe deserves a chance at a quote unquote bigger club. But Tottenham. where he goes is anyone's guess. I'd like to see him at Tottenham, but that's because I think Marie, I think Jose Mourinho is, and this will be my first swear of the podcast. A total shit bag. <laughs> <laughs> I do not like Jose Mourinho, and I want to see him out of football for a while. I want to have him away from the Premier League. I want to see him away from big club. I, I, do you know what? I'd, my favourite thing in the world, I think it'd be good for him and everyone else involved. I think he wants to just needs to go back to Porto for a couple of years, have a nice time, have a break, have a relax, get out of the limelight and stop being such a colossal, my second swear of the podcast. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't like him. So yeah, I'd love to see Eddie Howard at Tottenham. That'd be really nice for me. Anywhere else we'd put him? I think Everton's maybe off the cards because, good Lord, they want to keep all the Carlo Ancelotti. They want to yeah. grab on tight and never let go. Uh... Maybe somewhere like Sheffield United, but again... Ooh, Leicester. Leicester. No. Well, I think Brendan Rodgers is doing a good enough job there that I think you'd want well, to Well, he really. was. And then, then the wheels yeah. on the bus fell off, off, off. And then we came to the restart and Leicester kind of crumbled. Yeah, um, I think West Ham is a good is a good shout there, given they've currently got David Moyes, who's been yeah. just as dull and questionable as ever. So I think West Ham's a good shout. Dan, where would you, where would you send him? I don't know, mate, to be honest with you. I can't see him. I can't see him right now uh, being offered a Premier League team. Why? Because after what happened at Bournemouth, when you really look at it, yes, he was a brilliant manager for the first few years, like in the Premier League. I mean, but then there came this stagnation from Bournemouth. Now we know for a fact that there is a lot of it is down to the board and not getting Eddie Howe the players that he needed to improve that team. But I think I've seen a lot of things that have been questionable about Eddie Howe's tactics. Him keeping Bournemouth in the Premier League for as long as he did is nothing short of a miracle. Oh, I just wanted to say congratulations to Harrogate Town for getting into the uh, Football League for the first time in their 100-odd year history. I think it's a massive achievement for a Yorkshire club. So, onto our new segment, which I believe will come a weekly affair. That's why I'm calling it the Transfer Time Attack. I've assigned each of you a couple of names of confirmed transfers to talk about. And what you're going to do is then you're going to have two minutes on the clock and you're going to tell me why it's a good or bad transfer. Give it a bit of opinions on it, see what's going on. So, first of all, it's you, Mike. Talk about Adam Lallana going from Liverpool to Brighton. Your two minutes starts now. I think it's a good move. Like... 
I honestly believe that Lallana is one of those players that on his day can change the game. And I don't think that Brighton, since they got rid of Knockart, have had a player like that. Like, yes, arguably, they haven't done too badly this season. But I think they've lacked that sort of creative spark that someone like Knockart and Lallana can provide. I think that he's still a world-class player and that getting him on a free transfer is a good bit of business, providing that they can keep him fit. Like, obviously, with Lallana, his injuries have kind of hampered his Liverpool career. But I think with it being a free transfer, you kind of negate some of that risk. Like, he's, I think he's in his early 30s now. And I think that if he kind of has a good two seasons at Brighton, that there's no, that there's kind of a chance that they'll be able to recoup, well, not recoup money, but get some money from him from like, someone like Crystal Palace or West Ham that will pay something like three or four million for him. So I think that it just makes sense. Like for a team like Brighton, I think it's a perfect fit for him. It gives him that opportunity to kind of rekindle his career because I think he said himself towards the end of his Liverpool career, like he kind of was worried about what was coming next. And I think that Brighton's a nice little kind of, I think it's a good move for him. I think it's a good move for them. Makes sense. There's me. There's my tuppence. Fair enough. Well, if you've managed to get yourself finished early, so that's all good. Up next is David Hanlon. You're talking about Joel Veltman again to Brighton from Ajax. Your two minutes starts now. I honestly think this signing because he's a decent centre back. He's done well. I think he played in the Bundesliga before Ajax, and yeah, he's bringing a bit of experience and honestly it shows a bit of intent from Brighton that they've lacked for the past four years probably where they've kind of not signed anyone like bringing in Lana and the centre-back really shows fans right we're going for this this year and I feel like yeah it should be a good move for the both of them and hopefully they can bring in a few more people and really push to like pretty much what Wolves have done and try and disrupt the order of things. Like I'd like to see them probably get a few like more attacking players and just really give a good push. Yeah. Good signing in my opinion. Uh, next up, Dan, are you ready to talk about Timo Werner going to Chelsea from RB Leipzig? Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for your two minutes in the spotlight? Yeah, go on then. So, your thoughts on Timo Werner to Chelsea? Your time starts now. Uh, Chelsea's getting relegated, no money kidding. Um, first things first, we know that Timo Werner is a prolific goal scorer and the Premier League will be a big test for him. However, his pace should shine through and his finishing ability you can see Chelsea really having a good goal this season. Um, he's already been praised in training by Pulisic for his instant impact. Uh, there's been a few comparisons to Alan Shearer, questionable, but we know Werner is a fantastic goal scorer and an excellent striker and proved himself so at RB Leipzig. However, a few things have come out recently that, uh, making Chelsea perhaps second-guess this transfer as he was apparently caught texting in training 
and there is now speculation he may already want to go back to the Bundesliga. Whether this is true or not, we have no idea, but speculation is speculation. It's probably all nonsense. Um, and there's the whole thing with Klopp missing out on him and holding a phone call, trying to convince him to come to Liverpool rather than Chelsea. We know that Werner chose the latter for whatever reason he did. Whether it will be a good decision for Chelsea or not remains to be seen. Uh, but I believe that Chelsea will do well. Will they do as well as certain other teams? I'm not sure. I don't know if Werner will hit the ground running or not. But his track record in the Bundesliga should prove otherwise. Right, well, up next. Oh, it's me. Interesting. So I've got Hakim Ziyech, again, the Chelsea transfer from Ajax. Another Ajax transfer. My time starts now. Hakim Ziyech, uh, we all saw in the Champions League, not last, no, not this season, last season. It's all very confusing now because of pandemic. He's excellent. We all see him excellent. He's such a good playmaker. He's brilliant at playing on either through the middle or on the wing. He's going to add a lot to that Chelsea squad. There are obviously only questions of how you fit all their attacking players in, given Timo Werner, Mason Mount, Pulisic. But theoretically, you can get them all in and they should be an absolute threat going forward. Uh, it's also something to mention, particularly, they're going to be a threat from a set piece now. Particularly a free kick, Chelsea, because Ziyech can certainly hit them. Mason Mount, as we've seen this season, can certainly get them. But no, Ziyech is fantastic. I'm surprised they only had to spend £40 million. And Obviously, there'll be additions there, but surprised they spent £40 million for him. And I'm surprised it took a Premier League, it took a big club to come in for him. It took this long. It, it's, I'm surprised no one came for him immediately after that season. But, it, you know, it's nice for him to hold on a bit and see how another season at Ajax. But it'll be nice to see him in the Premier League. Uh, as, as Dan said, uh, we'll see how they hit the ground running and see if they can really get going quickly. I hope they do. Uh, and personally, I can see, I'll say to screw you, Dan, I can see Chelsea challenging for for definitely top four, if not the title, next season, to be honest. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, Joe. I'd, I'd, I'd say Chelsea would be an, you know, an outside, a decent outside bet to put a quid on yeah. next season. Uh, next up, Mike, you're back to the, back to the table again. With. Sorry, can I just quickly say on Ajax, I think that the whole kind of Ajax way of football is fantastic from the ground up. Oh, yeah, I can't I can't praise Ajax enough for the, just the way they run their club. It's incredible. Yeah. If you want to look at a way to run a club in football, look no further than Ajax. Absolutely. Uh, you're next up talking yeah. about Dejan Lovren to St. Petersburg from Liverpool. Is it a good? Is it a bad? Who does it benefit? Who does it not? Your time starts right. now. Liverpool have done brilliantly because... To get twelve million for a player that's played twenty three times over the past two seasons is is a fair whack. That's that's a decent amount. I, I, don't, I think they could have got him for much less. And I think that I don't know. Like for me, yes, he he adds something to a defence, but I think for that price, they could have got someone younger and a bit more. I don't know. Hungry is not the right word because I, I, I think that Lovren's one of those players that is quite a hungry player for like titles and clean sheets and everything that a defender strives for. I just don't rate him that much. Like, obviously, they signed him way back when, well, was it maybe four seasons ago now? And I think that he did okay in his first couple of seasons. 
but it was in that kind of mass Southampton exodus that kind of came about where Liverpool just kind of went, oh, Southampton, here's here's a checkbook. Just put however many zeros at the end of the number and we'll, we'll pay it. I, I just, for me, it makes sense for the player. It makes sense for Liverpool. And I suppose it sort of makes sense for Zenit St. Petersburg. I just think that they've paid a little bit too much money for him. And I can't... I suppose it's a different league to the Premier League, the Russian League. And like it has been a while since we've had an ageing player kind of go over there back in the day where like Eto and all sorts of players were like just jumping so ship in your, up. In your last in your last ten seconds, I'm gonna ask you a very quick question. Uh, yeah. does this now leave Liverpool short at the back given they only now appear to have starting to the backs of Joel Matip and Van Dyke? Well yeah, for sure, but you could also argue Joe Gomez can do a job at centre back. And I also believe that with that twelve million they will sign another centre back. But yeah, I think they paid too much money. Fair enough. Uh, just over time there, but we were pretty damn close. Uh, well, you you interrupted me. Well, I had to. You only had ten. You seconds took five also. seconds out of my time there. Well, you finished early in the last few times, so we'll let you off. What's Daniel, are you ready to talk about Leroy Sané to Bayern Munich? Your two minutes, Dan, starts now. Leroy Sané's move to Bayern Munich um, is the best for Leroy Sané for one thing. Uh, I believe that City have definitely lost something. And absolutely, Bayern Munich have well and truly gained something. Sané is a fantastic winger. He's brilliant. And uh, arguably, he could play in the centre-attacking role as well. Uh, especially with Coutinho leaving again, back going back to Barcelona and wherever he's going. Sané could slot right in the middle there if he wanted to, or back out on the wing. It depends on where he will be played. But partnering him up with the most prolific goal scorer in Europe right now will only make Brian Munich ever stronger. And I think Leroy Sané is in for, well, a most enjoyable moment of his career playing in Germany for arguably the best German team in the country. What more do you say about Bayern Munich? And then adding a player like Leroy Sané, who not only is a tremendous dribbler, technically fantastic, is also a wonderful goal scorer and can score wonderful goals. You put him with a player like Lewandowski, they could be Champions League contenders if they can strengthen further in areas where the squad may need it. Whether they may need it or not remains to be seen. But Bayern are still ever strong. They will probably win another Bundesliga this year. And I really do believe they will be contending for the Champions League in a much better capacity. Yes, they are still in it now, but I think next year be even stronger. And Leroy Sané, I think he he's absolutely going to flourish there. Last on the list for the day, David Handen. You get the most recent of these transfers of Victor Osiman to Napoli from Lille for a fee currently understood to be 70 million euros. Your two minutes start now. This is what I can only describe as a FIFA transfer. <laughs> He has not been anywhere close to good for Lille. He's had a few good games, but he's ultimately played, I think it's 26 matches, been involved in 13 goals. Yeah, it's not bad, but for that price, I honestly, like when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Obviously, I play FIFA, I've seen his good card. But 
I, I looked at the stats and I was like, he hasn't really done much. So, yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a good move for him. Probably a good move for Napoli, depending on where they're playing. Uh, I don't know if this is a signal of intent by Napoli as well, because they wanted Immobile. I think they've kind of been put off by the fact he's won the golden shoe. But, I, yeah, I can see... I can see the benefits, but for me, it seems like a lot of money for someone that may or may not perform in the league. Because the French league and the Serie A are very vastly different. Like, it's normally the other way around, players moving from the Serie A to the French league. So, I don't know. I hope, hope he does well, because Napoli deserves somebody that will do well for them. And... I think he needs to prove himself, really, because he is still only 21, which is probably why the fee is astronomical. But for me, it's a fee for transfer. That's all we've got on the transfer lists for this week. Uh, next week, I imagine that list will be a lot longer as the window rolls on. Uh, but for this week, boys, uh, that's it. That's all we've got on the cards. Just quickly before we finish, could I just say something on Leroy Sanit of Bayern Munich? Go for it. I just think that I think it's a great move for Leroy Sané, and I honestly believe that he's going to be a, like he's he could be Bayern Munich's captain within the next two or three years. That's a bold claim. Yeah, but I don't necessarily disagree with you. No, neither. I, I think Bayern Munich have definitely got a fantastic team for the future because you've got Serge Gnabry who's not that old you've got Kingsley Corman who could be on his way out yes but again he's fairly young Leroy Sané who's young Leon Goretzka who's young uh, who did they bring in recently he was also a small child uh, Nicolas Sewell he's not very old and he's one of their key centre-backs uh, yeah. they're obviously buying up every German goalkeeper they can get their hands on who's under the age of 22 to hopefully replace Neuer when he's on his way out. Yeah, they're they're looking to be a very very strong squad in the future. So I've got. I think they could do with another striker. Like I know that they uh, obviously Lewandowski's the one of the world's best at the moment, but I do believe that they could do with some backup strikers that can bang them in. Yeah, well, I've, I'm not really worried about Bayern Munich. They've got all the money and they've basically got dominance over the league. So they'll just keep winning every year for. I expect so hey well we'll see if Dortmund might catch them maybe who knows we'll see anyway uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure lads um, yeah. until next week and I'll see you all next week something about painting fences as we say yeah. enjoy painting your fence love that's the one fix your watch well on that note we shall call it a day see you next week <laughs>